Unlocking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to the Hacking Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. If it's your first time listening, I want to welcome you. And if you've decided to tune in again, thank you so much for your continued curiosity. I'm recording this episode from Hong Kong, so if you hear any humming in the intro, it's the sound of one of the world's most densely populated cities singing to you, but hopefully that will be kept to a minimum. I've got a great guest for you today, and I'm going to introduce him in just a minute. But first, I want to thank the first contributor to the podcast on Patreon, Robert Pattison. Robert, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support. I am truly beyond grateful. I hope your example can inspire others because I very much want to keep this podcast ad-free. And I want to say just a bit about why I think this is so important. This is about more than just this podcast. And in fact, it's this is something I've really started to do myself as a listener to podcasts. And I've come to appreciate um, an appreciation which has certainly increased through having my own podcast. But this is really about promoting a different business model, a next generation one that is not dependent on corporations or the other forms of advertising revenue that have traditionally financed media and have traditionally influenced and limited media. So not only is it worth a small payment, in my view, to avoid ads, which is reason enough for me in and of itself. I really do just hate ads. But this is really about a bigger story within Western societies and I think all societies really. In the U.S., for example, five corporations control about 80% of the media in the United States. This is a similar structure to other countries and in fact it's some of the same multinational corporations who dominate the media landscape in other countries such as Rupert Murdoch's News Corp which controls media and certainly major outlets in Australia, the US and the UK just off the top of my head and wouldn't surprise me if he was uh, if they had a big presence in other countries as well. If you think this corporate media model doesn't have an impact on the range of opinion, then please email me at Hacking Consciousness, that's without the G, so H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S at gmail.com, or you can hit up that same handle on Twitter, and I'd be happy to have a more detailed discussion with you, but this is something about which I, I feel very strongly. And if you want further reading on the topic, I would recommend Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consents. That offers a good framework for understanding this phenomenon of how power structures limit critical debate, even within a a country as relatively free as the US or the UK or Australia. I have some issues with Chomsky, so if some of you rolled your eyes when I mentioned his name, um, we might share some of those issues. But I do think he's pretty spot on about the limitations on the media as it exists within a larger power structure, a corporate one specifically within capitalist societies. And I think that's a helpful framework that strikes me as pretty spot on. My biggest personal motivation is also, um, frankly, I do not want to censor the content of this show in any way, shape, or form. I don't want to be accountable to sponsors who might take objection to what I have to say. This show will tackle some topics that are controversial or politically incorrect, and I want the listeners to have a candid and thoughtful discussion of these topics. So if you're willing to 
look at creative content like podcasts as something that, like a cup of coffee, you're willing to spend a few dollars on a week, which is actually considerably less than a coffee habit for many of us, um, then that can be, for most people, a relatively small expense that, when added up across a large number of listeners, helps to finance a creative project and to ensure critical and creative discussion of important issues. That is a viewpoint to which I have started to shift over the last year. I came to realize and reflect on my own behavior that this cultural expectation that everything is supposed to be free, like music, is not a sustainable one for the artists who create them, uh, who create these products. And I'd come around to this viewpoint before having my own show, but it's certainly having my own show has has helped me to really uh, empathize with the importance of this on a personal level. So just wanted to share those thoughts and say thank you so much to Robert and, and hope that inspires some others. I also want to thank several people as well who took the time to write a review on iTunes. This is really another important and extremely helpful way to get the word out about the podcast. I also really appreciate constructive criticism and thank you to the listener who mentioned the difference in volume levels. That is something that I took to heart and have researched it and and download some software to address that issue. So hopefully that won't be a problem going forward. So any constructive criticism, I really welcome. You can leave it not only on iTunes, but you can email me at Hacking Conscious, that same address. Hacking Conscious, just no G in the hacking at gmail.com. Okay, so now let me introduce this week's guest. Julian Vane is a British occultist with over three decades of experience with esoteric culture. During this time, Julian has written for numerous underground esoteric journals, contributed to various collections of essays, and for two years edited Pagan Voice, a monthly UK-based pagan newspaper. Books by Julian include Farm Making, Drugs in the Imagination, Magic Works, Stories of Occultism in Theory and Practice, and Deep Magic Begins Here. He is a founding member of Transform Drug Policy Foundation and the chair of the Friends of the Boss Castle Museum of Witchcraft. Julian is a regular speaker at conferences on the subject of contemporary occultism and magic. He is also a museum educator and in that capacity is the author of Wonderful Things, Learning with Museum Objects. And now I give you my interview with Julian Vane. Hi, Julian. How's it going? Very well, Adrian. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Most appreciated. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I've really enjoyed your book and your previous talks, and I'm so happy that we have the opportunity to connect. Excellent. Excellent. So you've, you've written a wonderful book called Getting Higher, The Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony. And I'd love to start out with you just sharing with our listeners what inspired you to write this book. Okay, well, I guess this is a book that's been, for me, uh, a long time in uh, gestation in terms of uh, my own engagement with psychedelics uh, and more broadly with consciousness-changing techniques and tools has been one that's been going on for a long time. And I kind of figured that uh, maybe possibly even as long as something like 10 years ago, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was a book that brought together a lot of the um, the underlying sort of principles, as I see them, of the set, the classic set and setting stuff? You know, how do we set up a psychedelic experience? How can we influence and modify the psychedelic experience? How can we, you know, direct it, change it, explore it? 
Um, and it wouldn't it be great if there was a book that basically listed all the, the stuff. My own practice is very much about technique. So I'm always really interested in, you know, people have different belief systems. They have different cosmologies. They have different uh, religious or, or, or um, uh, you know, other kind of psychic structures that they use. But underneath all of that, that there are these, in my view, core techniques. So what I wanted to do with Getting Higher was to write a book which drew those things out of the different traditions that I'd encountered personally uh, from the kind of experiences that I'd had working uh, uh, alongside people who are involved in the contemporary new wave of this, you know, what's been called the psychedelic renaissance, the, the new wave of um, research. And I wanted to kind of draw that stuff together. So I put it down in, uh, in in a book and it took a long time to kind of hack it around, get the kind of the voice that I wanted. So I wanted something that was authoritative, but not authoritarian, that was kind of clear, but also allowed people to have lots of room to play and experiment that kind of said, you know, here are some serving suggestions. Here are some practices. Here are some ideas. You, you can choose to use these in whatever way you, you'd like. I was also very fortunate in being able to bring the text to a number of practitioners, some of whom were from, you know, really genuinely uh, very long, uh, long lived traditions of uh, psychedelic and entheogenic practice. And I was able to bring that text to them and say, guys, you know, what, what do you think? Have I missed anything out? So the, the book went through lots and lots of iterations um, until it was being, you know, polished up uh, at the beginning of um, uh, this this calendar year and then was released and and people seem to have responded to it really really well so I've had lots of really nice feedback it's been uh, it's been great yeah I think it's excellent so I would definitely join that chorus of voices it is uh, very focused on the practical and I like that you are so focused on technique and we're really going to unpack that over the course of this podcast because that's a, a commitment that I share as well. One thing that I would love for you to identify for people who maybe haven't read your book are what are the most reliably important variables for predicting a positive psychedelic experience? Okay, but there's an example that I give in the book which came up in a conversation with my eldest son. So my eldest son was talking to me about LSD and he said, well, what, what's the problem with, with acid? Why is it illegal? Why is, why is this a thing? And I kind of said, well, you know, like with a lot of stuff, some people maybe take too much of it. And he said, well, people take too many chocolate biscuits. It doesn't mean we make chocolate biscuits illegal. And I said, this is a very good point. And I said, well, what it comes down to is that you might be on acid and you might be sitting there with a, a group of people and you might say, hey, look at all the little faces in the trees. But under less good circumstances, you might say, hey, look at all the little faces in the trees. Now, the, perce perce the perception is the same. The... The difference is the circumstances in which you've placed yourself and the circumstances in which that trip is unfolding. We know from the work of Leary and all of those people are working in the first wave of psychedelic research that set and setting is the thing. Yeah? So trying to create an optimal uh, mindset to go into this experience and trying to create an environment which is going to support the type of experience that you're going to engage with. And of course, there are multiple, multiple ways of doing that. And there is, of course, a relationship between those things. So, for example, we can reset our set by changing our setting. So in other words, if you're going to have a psychedelic experience, one of the simplest things you might want to do is clean yourself and clean the space that's, that's going to happen in. Yeah? So you bring attention to it, you bring preparation to it. You do the kind of thing that in every single ritual domain of any description, whether it's surgeons scrubbing up before an operation or whether or not it's people ritually sweeping the magic circle who are Wiccans, doesn't really matter. The first thing you do is very often prepare the space by clean, cleansing it, cleaning it. That can be an inside process, uh, you know, tidying the room, taking the trash out, all this kind of thing. And also a personal process, you know, having a shower, getting ready for something like this. And also, of course, the other thing for me, my practice is I, I do a lot of stuff with other people. And so this idea of look at all the little faces in the tree, who you're with is massively influential on the way the experience is going to unfold. So going down that route of saying you want safe, sane, consensual, good people to be with, good uh, uh, friends to be, you know, psychonauts with you. I think who's with you, um, th there are so many factors. There are so many factors. There can be the 
intention that you're bringing into it. So, for example, you might be entering a psychedelic experience wanting some specific form of uh, healing or transformation. And so the relationship you might have with the other people within that setting, that might be a kind of a, an explicitly therapeutic relationship. So there may be somebody there who's going to be uh, acting as a kind of uh, a, a guide or a therapist in that kind of environment. It may be that you're just a, group, a peer group. So it's a group of friends who are going to engage with this experience together. But fundamentally, it comes down to having those good relationships. This is as intimate as having sex with people, potentially. Uh, so you're going to be in a vulnerable situation. You're going to have the doors of perception that are going to be, you know, cleansed and open. And you are wide open to whatever is going to unfold in that setting. So you want to make sure that the environment is good, that your preparation personally, mentally is good, and that your companions are people that you can have this, again, safe, sane, consensual and ideally fun, supportive um, uh, space with where you can engage in what can be really, really life-changing, powerful experiences. Um, and to, to really be mindful of that, I think, is really essential. I, I realize, so I'm asking you this question, what is a positive, what are the reliable variables for a positive psychedelic experience? But it's a bit of a loaded yeah. question itself in terms of, quote-unquote positive experience i feel this is something that kind of needs to be explored a little further and there's some misconceptions about it among those who use psychedelics so in your view what is a positive psychedelic experience and i think inseparably related to this question which you can perhaps touch on is what is the purpose of using psychedelics okay so um Let's do the last one first. So what's the purpose of using psychedelics? If you look at the research from Imperial uh, in London um, that was being conducted last year, we have a, 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 an fMRI model of what happens to your brain on acid, for example. And also, you know, there's models coming out now for DMT and psilocybin and so on. And they will do, like they say, broadly the same thing. So we have the default mode network. We have the normal narrativizing self and consciousness that you and I are occupying right now as we're having this conversation that we spend a lot of our time in because we're social creatures doing our social stuff. What psychedelics allow us to do is they turn down the default mode network, so the narrative self, and they turn up a whole bunch of other processes. So that can mean that sensory processes become, if you like, cross-wired. Processes that are normally unconscious become available to awareness. And it's rather like turning the sun down when an eclipse happens and all the stars, which are there anyhow, kind of come out. So what all psychedelics do uh, in various ways and with slightly different emphasis depending on the nature of the substance is that they turn down our narrative self typically. And what they do is they allow other novel connections and forms of awareness that are potentially present all the time, but we generally don't have our awareness located there to come out. So it allows us to break out of the, the usual way that we think in order to have opportunities to think differently. And that can manifest in the way that the edge detection systems in our uh, brains break down and things look like they're breathing. Or it can, it can change in the form of uh, that we have what appear to be uh, random uh, spontaneous arisings of ancient memory from our uh, perhaps early childhood experiences or whatever in the psychedelic state. So they all do this thing, which essentially is to turn down the narrative self and to bring out these other processes, which have all kinds of interesting possibilities in them. So you know, the, 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 the way that humans um, behave with regard to things like the placebo effect or the way that we are able to modify aspects of ourselves through uh, hypnotic processes or any of these other ways of changing awareness become available to us in the psychedelic state. So that's kind of what they what they do. How do we know if it's positive? Well, man, who knows? I mean, it all ends in death, doesn't it? So you know, ultimately, um, or transformation, depending on how <laughs> how, uh, how upbeat you're feeling. But the positive experience, a positive experience, I suppose, um, I would look to say that there are, you know, there are trips that are that can have challenges in them that can be difficult. So I know that I've been in very, very positive circumstances with really good groups of people. And I've taken, for example, ayahuasca, and I've been presented with very, very difficult personal stuff. But because I'm in a good environment, 
to respond to that and to uh, find my way through that journey, I would consider that to be a positive experience, even though there's some freaky entity thing which is representing all the shame and fear that I have about the world presenting itself as a piece of visual material in my ayahuasca-infused brain, and I'm having to dialogue with this entity, whatever, you know, whatever. There's still a positive experience. It's quite easy to understand how you might create what one might broadly call a negative experience, and all you have to do is to go and look at some of the more depressing things that humans did, or rather the governments, the power structures we inhabit, did when psychedelics first arose. So we did things like to think, okay, what happens when we give this to prisoners and we torture them? What happens when we give them to military personnel? What happens when we give them to random um, you know, CIA officials or people who happen to be in um, brothels or whatever? So we can create, it's easy to imagine bad experiences, unpleasant experiences, but an experience that involves work or involves some difficulty, part of the attraction of psychedelics is that when our narrative sense of self is turned down, all the other stuff comes out, and that can include stuff that we repress in one way or another. And we, and we are, if we're in a good place, both psychologically and um, in terms of the environment that we're in, we can address that stuff. That's the healing potential of it. So lots of healing involves a degree of pain. Yeah, lots of recovery involves a degree of uh, difficulty, and that doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah, and, and so. There's no, you know, it's not like, as you said, it's a loaded question. There isn't an either or, there is only the process and trying to optimize that in terms of your own you know, life journey, life experience, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that because, well, I think there's no question, you know, there are these, these variables that are within our control that we want to always implement, you know, in order to maximize what we can get out of the experience. Um, some people seem to have misconceptions that, oh, it was difficult or I had bad visions or bad thoughts or it wasn't a total bliss fest. So that was a bad trip. And I think we really need to kind of challenge and reframe a lot of the language around yeah. psychedelic experiences and intentions. So I appreciate what no, you just had to, to just say to, there. Just to, just to echo that point, because it's really, really important. And there's a really good example of that. So if you look at the traditions that you say peyote or ayahuasca, when you, uh, in many of these settings, when, uh, when and if people vomit, um, they, it's described as getting well. So the, the, the experience that many people have, and you know, I, this is something that does, isn't particularly significant for me for various reasons, but when people have, you know, uh, are, are purging, for example, on ayahuasca, you, you set the language, you set the, uh, um, the environment in which that's happening to describe the process as getting well. No one's going to die from being sick. No one's going to die from vomiting. Uh, you know, it's fine. But if that person does have that experience, you've embedded the idea that they are getting well, that this is a purging process. This is a healing process. This is something coming out of them that needs to come out of them. And so, you know, it's not fun to be over the bucket, vomiting into the bucket and tripping uh, your, your mind at, uh, and, and, you know, in this really intense kind of a way. But how you hold that experience is important. And most people who go through something like that will come out at the end and say, actually, do you know what? That was really helpful because it brought up all sorts of stuff physiologically and psychologically. And I was able to kind of transform it, expel it, change it. So you're totally right. I mean, you know, these things can give us ecstatic delight and peak experiences, which are typically about, you know, haze and stuff. You know, the universe is beautiful. It's amazing. And we should also acknowledge that that itself is a healing process and that there are processes that we can go through that involve a degree of work, you know, that involve us, what, you know, doing this, doing this uh, uh, work. And there's, there's an effort involved in that, you know, there's an effort involved in that. But we can frame these things in a way that I think is, 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 uh, is helpful for people. You talked about the use of ayahuasca and peyote in the original indigenous context. And that just made me think of an important point, which is that so often, I mean, actually what happens fundamentally really when we're talking about using psychedelics, especially anything like any cactus, um, 
any uh, you know any cactus, ayahuasca, mushrooms, any of these really, except for LSD, they were used in traditional indigenous context, and there was a very they had a very specific set of practices and circumstances. And then what happens is we go down to Peru and learn about ayahuasca. And then we rip that technology or that plant out of its original context. We import it into our culture. And a lot of times we don't bring along all of those other practices. And I kind of feel like sometimes it's like we've, we've forgotten to read the instruction manual. You know, I, I wonder if you can kind of talk about for maybe people who are interested in psychedelics, but don't have any sort of interest in shamans or anything like that because they view it as suspicious or superstitious or outside of their own worldview. What is the value of what these indigenous cultures have developed in working with these substances? That's a really good question. There's, there's several things to unpack from that. I mean, I suppose the first thing is that it's um, it's probably, it's in my view, not accurate to, um, or it's something we should be aware of when we talk about indigenous culture as though it's some sort of, you know, fixed foreign thing from over there. And actually, if you look at something like, for example, the use of ayahuasca, you can see how over the course of the last definitely the last 50 years, probably longer than that, and way before ayahuasca pilgrimage or tourism, depending on how you like to think of this stuff, that ayahuasca has also moved in those cultures in South America. It's now used by cultures that previously didn't use it, and it's used in a variety of different ways. Same with things like the peyote. The peyote is used by a number of different cultural groups, and you can see over time that these groups are changing too. Yeah? These are not kind of some fixed noble savage thing over in the foreign land, that we as Westerners kind of go over and, and interact with. These are all continuously changing, continuously moving stories. Um, having said that, many of the cultures, you know, people like the Wicholis, for example, you know, they've got like a 3,000-year uh, engagement with this substance. And basically, they, they're, they're, you know, they're just kind of human beings like anyone else, but they're human beings who've had plenty of time to explore it, to come up with different ways of thinking about it, to find techniques of that the, in their view work with it and unsurprisingly um, many of those techniques translate quite happily into other contexts because they're fundamentally about that we're humans yeah um, and if you take the for instance the um, uh, Native American church peyote circle there it is you go into the peyote circle there's like a, a big fire in the middle that's done in a special way that's, that's that's spread out at different points within the ceremony and there's a drum going the drum just goes boom 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 all through the night now that's basically a rave so basically what you're doing is you're using the phenothalamine family of mescaline rich chemicals that includes with a slight tweak things like MDMA and you put on a light show and you put on you put on hardcore uh, techno. That's what you've done. It's just that you've done it without access to the kind of technological structures that we have in the West. When the same medicine turned up in our cultures as MDMA, we responded in basically the same way because we're humans. We came up with light shows and we came up with repetitive beats. So there are, there are similarities simply because we're humans exploring this territory are Neurology works in more or less the same, you know, in, in basically the same way. Our physiology works in the same way. And so what the shaman is doing is some, if you, if you take aside the kind of the, the, the cultural wrapper or the, um, the specific context in which that's happening, many of the behaviors can be seen as, as, uh, as the same as things that we might do, even in a very conventional, you know, Western uh, psychedelic session that's being used as part of the new therapeutic movement with um, with the use of something like MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. We have to be thoughtful about this because, of course, you and I come from power structures which historically have been responsible for damaging many of these cultures in a big way. So we have to be really respectful and thoughtful and um, when we engage with these these ideas because... You know, we can talk about cultural appropriation, but we can also just talk about being disrespectful and being impolite. And of course, that's best avoided, particularly if the power relationship is the, the kind of one that you know, we exist in historically. But I think that it's not necessary to, uh, to absorb the whole of some 
what from my perspective would be a, a different cultural setting. I can be informed by those things. I can talk to those people. I can have a respectful engagement with those ways of working with uh, psychedelics. But I can also realize that fundamentally, the, the practices that are being used can be recast in whatever language, whatever cultural frameworks for me because the practices have been derived from our common physiology and our common humanity. Yeah, so this really speaks to your interest in technique. And I've heard you say before that there really are value in particular practices. And in the interview, I heard you say this, I believe you said chanting, but I mean, there are many others, I'm sure, which I'd love to hear you elaborate on. Um, But there really are value in practices themselves that have great utility even if you don't subscribe to the underlying belief system and i'd love to explore this with you because i found this very much to be the case with my own yoga practice originally i was very averse to say mantras and chanting because i viewed that as overt displays of religiosity which were outside of my worldview and identity and then i just was one day willing to try it and i found that there was incredible utility in in using that practice even if i didn't say believe literally in the ganesh as an actual you know elephant-headed god yeah, you know yeah. there's value as a as a symbol and there's power in the mantra so can you talk about the value of these uh these techniques that are kind of universal in a way and and why and, and how they relate to our okay, physiology, so, so that, as you it's, say. It's a really interesting point, and it's something that I'm, I'm quite um, passionate about because we, we see all these different ways of, uh, of doing religion, doing spirituality, doing self-discovery, whatever we want to call it. And as someone who has come through uh, the what, what's described as the chaos magic approach, so in the, 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 uh, this style of magic that evolved in the sort of late 1970s in Britain, and was very much about like looking for the underlying uh, principles uh, underneath the, the apparent chaos of all this different stuff. You know, people say, no, you should chant this. No, you should do this. No, you need to do this. And you realize, let's take the example of chanting as a, as a for instance. What happens when you chant? So what happens when you chant is that you have um, a process where it's, it's repetitive, yeah? So it's a continuous call to attention. So going back to that model that I was talking about earlier with this process in the brain, the default mode network, which is the narrativizing self. If you have something that calls you to attention, like that bell that's just gone off. So look, yeah, there you go. There's an example. Something brings you to attention. So the, the chanting or the drumming is basically saying, okay, Adrian, attention, 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 attention. So your attention comes away from your narrativizing self into something in the world. And what that does physiologically, neurologically, is it turns the default mode network, your narrative sense of self, down because it makes you pay attention to some other input. If you take the example of chanting, there's a sound going on. The sound, of course, is really interesting because if you're, if you're the one saying it, there's a new neuronal connection that's being made by the sound exiting your mouth and coming back around to your ears. So as well as it going through all the kind of neurons in your brain, it's actually going through the environment, bouncing off stuff and coming back. And what will be happening inevitably if you're chanting is that your breath will be changing. If you want to explore the idea of altered states of consciousness, and you want nothing whatsoever to do with any kind of freaky shamanism or guys wearing weird hats or, you know, whatever, all you need to do is lie down, put some good music on and do faster and deeper than normal breathing without any pausing for, let's say, an hour. Yeah, that will do it. And it will do it because your body, your physiology is geared up to do this. This is why when Groff was unable to use LSD for his research, he discovered what he subsequently described as holotropic breath work. But anything which is uh, chanting or breathing or singing, we know that these things uh, change our awareness. We know that they are good for us because there's an argument to say that this form of cognition that's not about the narrative self has many, many benefits and that we should probably as humans occupy that some of the time. It's probably psychologically, uh, it's, it's psychically good for us. It's good for our health. So these things change the physiology of the body. Now, whether you're chanting your name, whether you're chanting, um, you know, the poet Tennyson used to just chant his name, just would repeat his name. Um, if you're chanting a Sanskrit mantra, if you're chanting, uh, you know, some song or you're singing an Icaro, something like this, 
fundamentally, physiologically, what's happening is the same stuff. It's a call to attention, and it's also an opportunity for you to change your breath and to change the, the physiologically what's going on and therefore neurologically what's happening in your brain. Hopefully it makes sense to you as well. So if you're engaged with, let's say, uh, Eastern uh, spiritual forms, you're more likely to kind of go, oh yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll chant like a, a Shiva mantra, I'll chant a Ganesh mantra. Yeah. So there I am, I'm sitting there uh, chanting, you know, Jai Ganesha and doing all that whole thing because that works for me. That's a style that I want. Uh, uh, but it's whether or not there's any specific value in that style is open to discussion. You know, um, I think probably the, what matters is your belief in it at that kind of level. But fundamentally, the chanting will do stuff to the oxygen levels, the carbon dioxide levels in your body and therefore stuff that's happening in your brain. And that's how it works. Fascinating. I'd also heard as well from my one of my yoga teachers when he was talking to us about chanting that I believe chanting or singing or both stimulate the vagus nerve, which is connected, of course, to your brain and goes all the way down, key part of your nervous system, and which triggers the parasympathetic nervous system as well. So powerful way of inducing feelings of relaxation. That was interesting about the default mode network and how that relates. I actually hadn't thought about that in relation it, to, uh, to it, chanting. I mean, you know, there are many, many, we can, we can model this using, I mean, the reason I'm using the default mode network is just because that's the kind of, one of the things that people like Robin Carter Harris and various others have been looking at as a, an interesting model to describe what happens when we put you know, acid into someone's brain, for example, is the language that I'm using currently because that's part of the emerging research. We could be talking about brainwave activity. We could be talking about you know, um, theta states and delta states and so on. But fundamentally, what we, what we know is that these practices change our body mind. So the, you know, the body mind is one thing. It's not, we don't have a mind and then a body. And so we know that all of these practices, and this is where we kind of get into this idea of, uh, yeah, hacking consciousness, you know, using techniques to change our states of awareness. Humans have always done this. And humans do this right from the very word go. The moment that, you know, that a, a, a baby human can stand up, one of the first things it does is spin round and round and round and round and round and round and round and, round and sit down. So everything goes funny. Everything goes weird. So we are, we are designed, if you like, and we are certainly culturally enabled to explore the states of awareness that we are capable of doing. Psychedelic substances are one way of doing this, and processes like breath work, dancing, uh, you know, drumming, sex, uh, long periods in darkness, periods of uh, solitary uh, introspection and meditation, this will all do slightly different versions of the same basic process. Fascinating. So you just named a number of things. I was going to ask you, what do you think really are the most powerful tools for altering your consciousness, not on a psychedelic? We talked about chanting, you named several others. For you, what do you really find particularly powerful or that you enjoy returning to as a means of altering your consciousness in a positive way breath. aside from psychedelics. The breath. the breath is the is the obvious one. It's the thing that attends us all the way through our lives. And every time we breathe in, it's like the first breath we take as infants. And every time we breathe out, it's like the last breath that we give before we are transformed into a new, a different part of the universe. We're no longer a living being. So the breath it's always with us. It's very easy to control. And it's a beautiful example because breath happens unconsciously, but can be made conscious. And when we make it conscious, we can then use it to change consciousness. It's, it's you know, it's, it, that is a, the ideal way of doing it, really. Um, it's also kind of connected with this idea of there's, a, there's an emerging field called, uh, uh, the, uh, of studying a thing called introspection, which is our ability to be aware of the internal states of our body. So, for example, you can, and you can test this yourself. If you uh, take, you know, it's easier to do with a friend or you can do it with one of these kind of um, uh, Fitbit type devices. Every time your heart uh, makes a beat, it sends a, a, a ping, essentially, like a, a little um, uh, electronic ping to your brain. So you know every time your heart beats. 
And you can test yourself. You can test how many heartbeats you think you've done in, say, a minute. And then you can objectively measure that and see how close you are. And the people who people who are really good at being in touch with what we typically and very correctly, I think, describe as our gut instinct, they are very good at interception. They're very good at knowing what the... Because we think that we're a cognitive entity with just like a, a, a brain up at the top, but actually the whole of our bodies and our, our embodiment in the world is where our cognition happens. So to be aware of what's happening inside your body is a really, really strong thing. It gives you a lot more information about the world. And so to practice something like breath work, which allows you to become conscious of your breathing. And we know that this is the way to do it. You know, we know that when people are stressed, for example, they're suffering from, say, anxiety, the simplest thing you can do is to help those people or to remind yourself that changing your breath will change what's going on with the levels of cortisol in your body, will change what's happening with all of those you know, endogenous opiates that are being created. All this stuff can be controlled through the breath. So the breath is the one that, you know, and it's convenient. Don't need no stuff for it. Always there. Can, can I ask, are there particular techniques or schools of you know breathing exercises that you use for example do you use yogic pranayama techniques or are there particular practices yeah, or I traditions mean, I, for that me, you it's favor? kind of all of the above so what i like having is access to you know familiarity familiarity with a number of different techniques so one of the ones that i use fairly fairly often is is um i think it's sometimes called something romantic like tibetan breath of fire you know these kind of techniques where you're breathing into full capacity with the lungs and then what you do is you contract the abdominal muscles which forces all the breath up into the higher parts of the chest and into the bronchi it's the kind of thing that you do when you're doing um the the very the locks um so mulabanda and so on um in uh, yoga so you're pushing the capacity of the lungs uh, up into the top part of the chest and what you're basically doing is you're making it easier for you to absorb more oxygen and it's you know it's it's it's, it's healthy and it's kind of good for you and um, things like uh holotropic breath work or connected breath work so if i want to kind of enter a trance state and uh uh the the easiest way of doing that is something like this uh typically faster and deeper than normal breath but and with it without any pausing and that can be really really fast or it can be really slow and mostly within a session within a breath work session you might have um periods where the the the, the, the breath rate varies so so connected breath work i guess is the, the the one of the ones i would go for um and also using the breath as an anchor for things like mindfulness meditation so you know they're just the bog standard stuff of using the breath as something that I can become attentive to, then my mind will go off and wander on and you know, think about some stuff and then being able to come back to the breath. So this idea of like um, working with the breath to, 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 if you like, to strengthen it, to be, to be good at it. So for me, that's using this breath of fire technique, working with the breath to change consciousness. So that's using something like connected breath work or holotropic breath work. And working with the breath as an anchor in order to simply be present in the current state that I'm in and to notice that, which is you know, mindfulness meditation uh, kind of stuff. I'm wondering, can you share a little bit about, it just made me think of it because you were talking about, we've been talking at a couple points in this conversation about the research of Robin Carhart Harris and the team at Imperial, which is really some of the more exciting research happening in psychedelics in the world. And I'm just wondering, for those of us who aren't from the UK and are interested in these discussions, how is this research beginning to shift the debate at all in the UK around psychedelics? Do you have a strong sense that cultural attitudes in the general public are starting to change or what's the state of psychedelic reform? I mean, it's really interesting. In I think UK. that in, in the UK and um I think the same story is being paralleled in, in, in North America and, and in, in other places um, across Europe and so on, which is that every single time a researcher, a medical researcher, gets a license to work with one of these substances, that's a good thing. Because we know that they are valuable. We know that they are powerful. And we also know that we can use them for 
everything ranging from our own kind of you know groovy self-exploration through through to frankly helping people who've got serious mental health difficulties and there are many of those people in our culture much of our culture is sick many people around uh, on uh, you know in, in western civilization and elsewhere suffer from anxiety from depression from post-traumatic stress disorder from all kinds of difficulties and i think that both individually and perhaps culturally these substances can help us so every single time that people like robin kaha harris or ben sessa or the maps team any of these people get a license in my view that's a good thing it makes this stuff better able to be understood and i think that there is a gradual change happening because you know this is great what i see as a sort of dark comp comedic thing about the story of for example mdma so mdma was a it was a substance that came into our culture which made people want to dance and love each other and of course for a variety of different reasons we banned that substance now it turns out that we've sent so many people into war zones and we have so many veterans and others who are deeply damaged that we're having to readmit this substance because it's the only thing that helps them as part of a psychotherapeutic process what it, you know one might also describe as a shamanic healing to go into these difficult areas to and to uh step away from the groove step away from the the default mode network or their narrative self the normal way they think about themselves get a new perspective and engage in what is a powerful healing journey and it's the it's a healing that is more successful than any other technique we have by a long way and we've known this for years we know that for example with the research in um the early wave of psychedelic research looking at uh, alcoholism we know that basically if you want to cure someone of alcoholism combination of really good psychotherapeutic um support and acid works better than anything else it's a fact it's just a fact and i think people are starting to accept the fact that it, these are facts these this is this isn't just like what a like a bunch of kind of fruitcake hippies or a bunch of you know crazed would be shaman believe that there's empirical evidence to suggest that these things do work and they work better than any of the other uh pharmacological interventions that we have for helping people with things like you know depression and all the different forms of mental illness which are epidemic in our culture and so well, i think we're getting to the stage where you know it's almost in britain i think at the point of even kind of uh what one might describe as the more sort of uh, right wing elements within the press are starting to see that this is a real real positive thing um rather than saying oh mdma psychotherapy isn't that really controversial the discussion is changing so that it's becoming well how come mdma psychotherapy isn't available for our brave veterans yeah so because we know it works we know it works and it, yes of course it's problematic territory of course it's difficult we happen to be living in this weird blip of prohibition historically uh, and and how we're going to deal with that over time remains to be seen but we we've got this evidence now and we are getting increasing amounts of it and that's just a really good thing yeah you mentioned the the work of veterans i'm glad that you highlighted that in the uk i think that is something in the us that is could really be a game changer and that gives me a lot of hope first and foremost for the veterans who are suffering from PTSD who are finding healing in this that they're not finding from prescription medicines or other traditional avenues but in terms of reform um i think what's so powerful about it is it cuts right across the political spectrum right veterans are a very powerful political group in the US I imagine it sounds like in the UK as well and a lot of the politicians who are very the the biggest uh, obstacles to drug law reform are the same ones who love to wrap themselves in the flag and talk about how much yeah they yeah. love supporting the troops so I think it's it could be a paradigm changer if veterans true. become very active no, I think that's true and I think that it's, it, it is this 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 thing about um uh it is like i say darkly comedic the fact that we've we've readmitted this substance because we put so many people through war and because we have a society that's so sick but okay take that aside let's actually do this because there are a lot of people who are in pain there are lots of people you know there's the classic figure that as i understand it in the us more uh veterans committed suicide on their return from places like afghanistan and and uh, iraq than were actually killed there in the first place so 
you know, we've got to do something about this. And, and I think that this does unite people from different aspects of the political spectrum. Because as you, as you say, you know, people who identify as being, you know, very supportive of the military tend to have what we might broadly describe as a, uh, a nationalistic or a, a right-wing politic but these people are not necessarily stupid and they can see that the evidence is that this substance is going to help you know whoever their friend is who was in one of those war zones um and so you know this this is the transformation of culture rick doblin bless him fantastic guy you know he he came out really explicitly at one point and said you know the reason we're working with the u.s military is they've got most guns so if, if you want to kind of transform culture, this is one of the groups of people that you should be working with, actually, because they, they, are the, they are the strong arm of the status quo. And if we can, you know, if we can show the benefits of the psychedelic experience in this really kind of quite extreme uh, domain of culture, then of course we can see it in other fields because there will be other spin-offs. We know that psychedelics can help with things like learning. We know that they can help with things like problem solving. Again, Imperial's been doing some work on, you know, can you use LSD to help engineers, scientists, and, uh, and people with very explicit problems to solve, solve problems? And the answer, unsurprisingly, is yes, you can. So, you know, we can work with the veterans. We can get the kind of the traction there for these changes. And then we can hopefully find, and we will definitely find, I'm sure, that these substances and the mechanisms for inducing psychedelic experience that are perhaps not substance-based will have other benefits for other bits of culture. You know, as a, as a society, as a, as, a, as a culture, we've been disconnected from the psychedelic experience ever since the Temple at Eleusis closed down, pretty much. And so we've got like this over 2,000-year-long gap where we haven't been able, except within the context of quite prescribed religious domains, of altered consciousness, we haven't had access to this way of thinking, which is fundamental to being a human, and also is fundamental to our ability to heal ourselves. We, we have to get this back, and, and I'm really, really pleased to be living in a time when that seems to be happening. Well, that is the perfect note of optimism on which to wrap things up, I think. But before we do, I want to give you a chance, Julian, to tell our listeners about where they can find you on social media or any upcoming Thank events you that well, you have. Um, online, uh, I maintain a blog, um, working with a few friends, uh, which is the blog of baphomet.com. Uh, and, um, that's where I write, you know, there's lots of articles and lots of kind of, um, material that goes in that of all sorts of descriptions, some of it about psychedelics, some of it much more explicitly sort of esoteric occult stuff. Um, and there's also, uh, I'm on Facebook, people can find me there. There's a, a page that we, uh, that myself and my partner Nikki have called Deep Magic. And uh, when we have kind of events or workshops or retreats, which we're going to be doing quite a lot more of um, in, uh, in the UK and also in, uh, in the, the Netherlands, uh, we'll put information there. So both Nikki and I are speaking at the um, a conference coming up soon in Berlin. And the easiest place to find us, I guess, is, yeah, this combination of Facebook and, uh, and the blog. We're, we're pretty easy to locate online. Psychedelic Press UK is the publisher for Getting Higher. Nikki is the editor of the journal there, and they produce a really, really interesting journal, uh, which has writing that ranges from kind of hardcore neuroscience stuff, you know, history stuff and first-person accounts of psychedelic experience. So Psychedelic Press UK is another place to look at. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. Really, really appreciate it. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking consciousness.